I'm Bryce Butler from Access Ventures, and this is More Than Profit, a show where I talk with founders, investors, entrepreneurs, and leaders of all kinds about living and working with purpose, how they do it, and why. A couple weeks back, I was able to connect with Shruti Shaw while she was in town to speak at uh, Creative Mornings on the theme of invest. She's currently the entrepreneur and resident at Silicon Valley Bank working on a new fund concept that we dig into a little bit on this week's podcast. She also has a, a unique and pretty amazing origin story uh, that we'll dig into, and I'll let her talk a little bit about that. But what I think is interesting for our listeners will be her journey to date and the message for founders and investors around winning and losing, the roller coaster of raising capital and inevitably closing the doors to your startup. But more than that, the lesson around overcoming and understanding failure in, in pretty clear, specific ways that more founders, investors, and communities should as we hope to inspire the next generation of entrepreneurs. But first, let's jump in and talk a little bit about where it all started for Shruti. So I grew up in Memphis, but I was adopted. So I was born in India, and my dad's brother's wife and my dad's brother um, are my biological parents. And my parents adopted me when I was 11 months old. Um, but my, I guess the, the difference is that my adopted family is half white, half Indian. So my mom is a Jewish New Yorker from the Bronx. So I grew up Jewish in the South. I went to an Episcopal all girls school until I was in eighth grade. Wow. And yeah, had a lot of, a lot of different culture, I guess. Um, it was part of my life. So how did that, so growing up, so mixed, mixed race family adopted, uh, in the South, yeah. Episcopal all-girls school. Oh, yeah, and the other kicker is my mom was the breadwinner in our family. So she was a lawyer, and she worked full-time. My dad worked part-time and was an architect and then eventually stayed home wow. with us. And so uh, my family was just weird. We were very different. <laughs> did Not, you notice the difference, the, the, as I, you say, weirdness? I definitely, I, th- I think I did notice the difference. I, I don't think I knew it was because of that. Okay. Like, I think, I think as a kid growing up, I was very aware that we were different but I but we didn't call out like that that was the reason that we were different I just felt kind of out of place because I wasn't around people that looked like me Mm. um you know I was going to synagogue or bible study or you know any of these other things that like were definitely with people that didn't look like me um and so I think that was hard yeah um but but you did have chances to travel back to India yeah yeah, definitely. So, um, I mean, I when I was a kid, we only went back twice. Okay. Um, I've gone back a lot more frequently as an adult. But I think, um, yeah, I mean, I think it, it was a real, particularly as I got older, I think I started to realize how different my life would have been. I mean, I have a pretty clear sense of how my life would have played out in a different context. Yeah. Um, and I would have grown up in a middle class, lower middle class Indian family, um, which you know, it would have been fine. But in terms of just access to opportunity, I think um, four people made a decision and totally changed my life outcome. Wow. Yeah. And so how old were you when you moved to the United States? 11 months. 11 months old. Yeah. And your first time back was at seven. Yeah. Wow. So talk to me a little about your experiences and and are there any moments uh, that you can draw back on that, that were formative in how you think about the world, how you think about community? Um, I mean, you, you've experienced different communities, yeah. but just your perspective on people and community and some moments that might've helped shape that. I think, um, 
there's a few that I can remember really distinctly. My aunt, my dad's younger sister, not my biological family um, or my biological parents, um, she was an executive at IBM. And I once went to India, I think when I was in college, and she was basically managing one of the call center, center operations in Bangalore. And I remember that she took me to kind of get coffee in one of these um, coffee houses that sits in between kind of the, the different companies um, that have call center complexes there. And we started talking about kind of the demographic makeup of people that work in these call centers. And many of them have college degrees. Um, they were probably about my age or a little bit older. And I think that's when it really hit home for me that like um, opportunity is really different in different places and access to opportunity is really different in different places. Um, and a lot of that is shaped by the community that you grow up in and kind of the social capital that you have access to. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, and I think, I mean, I think more broadly for me, like I grew up in a community that was very mixed race, um, where my family has friends from a lot of different backgrounds. Um, and, friends who I think in many cases are family because we don't have a big family that lives here. Um, most of my mom's family was killed in the Holocaust. So, um, she has a pretty small family and most of my dad's family lives halfway across the world. So, um, I think what that enabled me to do was really, um, move through different types of communities in different ways, like kind of be a chameleon in some sense, mm. um, and relate to people from a lot of different backgrounds. Yeah. How did that make you, how did that make you feel? Because I think I think there's there's a point of which I'm listening to you, and it's awesome um, the perspective you have. I'm, I'm sure it's it's built a lot of empathy for others and just their own experiences and seeing them and like you know what that that ex that explains why this occurs or why they think this. But you mentioned chameleon. I mean, how does that make you feel? And so far as all, of, I mean, wow, what a diversity of experiences. Yeah. Before you even go to college. <laughs> totally. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think, I think it's always been hard. I mean, I think part of what's hard about it is that you don't ever really feel like you fit, like, mm. um, that you don't have a, a strong identity, um, that kind of puts you in a certain box. In some ways that can be really powerful. I think in other ways, sometimes finding your people or finding, you know, where you feel like, um, you can make a difference in the world or where people, other people get you, yeah. that can be a challenge. Um, and I think, you know, I've slowly gotten there. I feel like I pick people up, um, in different parts of, from different parts of my life and, yeah. um, kind of have built community that way. That's neat. So I'm the father of adoptive girls. Oh, cool. So, yeah. Uh, and so I'm listening to you talk and there, there, those are many of the things that, that my wife and I talk about a lot It's just, how do we, how do we navigate this, um, celebrating their, their culture, yeah. uh, talking to them about who they are and what that means. Where are they from? Where are originally from China. Okay. That's yeah. really cool. So it's fun, but it's also hard. It is really hard. Yeah. We can have a whole podcast I on know, adopted kids. Just adopted kids. I have so many thoughts. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I think my parents were not as, I mean, we did not, we did not do a lot of Indian cultural stuff. Yeah. I mean, my dad is Indian, but I think he came to America because he wanted to be American. So mm. it was like, not top of mind. And my mom was really, um, I think intent on us being connected to her family and her parents and sure. Jewish identity. So we didn't, I didn't really grow up with a, a lot of an Indian identity, which I think now is kind of strange because people make a lot of assumptions about my skin color and my name and 
all of the experiences I may or may not have had. Um, and so yeah. that can be interesting. It's but hard to be like completely seen yep. in the midst of all that. So, I mean, so you describe a chameleon. So your, your career has been somewhat chameleon too. Yeah, I mean, so, totally you went, so you're a Tar Heel. Yes. Uh, and then you, you go from UNC and you work with uh, uh, Teach for America. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you, and then you go from there to uh, an ed tech or a VC firm and then ed tech and then the, the company that you're known for. Yeah. Um, talk to me about those experiences and specifically Teach for America, um, the challenges that it, taught you uh, and how you carry those forward into the business totally so many challenges well I I, first I started I mean I decided I wanted to go into teaching because I really thought um, that the career that I wanted was going to be in government or policy I studied social entrepreneurship in school but I really thought you know the way to make change is like to do the hard work of um, you know working in the system and I thought teaching experience would be really valuable Um, and I wanted to understand more about the education system I think I went to a public high school in Memphis, which is still a deeply segregated school district, um, have always been really interested in public education and the role that public, public education plays in kind of creating um, democratic societies. And I wanted to be kind of part of that process. So I joined Teach for America and I taught in Baltimore, which is probably one of the hardest places in the country to teach. Um, and I think for a variety of reasons, um, decided to leave the classroom after a couple of years, namely because I didn't think I was a great teacher. Um, but I learned a lot in that process. And, and I think probably most importantly, like everything I thought I knew about education kind of got turned on its head. Um, many of the students that I taught were dealing with real um, socio-emotional challenges. They, had, um, they didn't have proper access to healthcare. They were in some cases malnourished. Um, they really were struggling, I think, to survive in a system that I, that really was, was pretty powerless in being able to help them. Um, and I felt pretty powerless as a teacher. Um, and I think the demands that we put on teachers too, um, have, have gotten to be quite complicated just in terms of what's expected, um, particularly in an environment where, Uh, students don't have access to a lot of resources. So while I was teaching, I got really interested in the role that technology could play um, for my students and actually being transformational. Mm. Um, Teach America talks a lot about transformational change. I think (laughs) I feel very much like I've lived transformational change just by kind of the very nature of the life that um, I've been given. And I really felt like if I couldn't, you know, if I couldn't fix all these other problems, like maybe technology was a way out for some of my students. So I used a lot of cool tech tools in my classroom. I helped train other teachers. Um, and my hope was that some of these cool products and services that I had found, many of which were located in Silicon Valley, um, could provide kind of resources and educational training that a lot of these students might need to be able to get jobs or kind of get themselves out of of the system or the cycle of poverty that they might be trapped into. Very idealistic view of the world, but um, (laughs) nevertheless, um, I decided to leave the classroom after two years, and I joined an early-stage education technology venture fund that, at the time, um, was really focused on helping entrepreneurs sell their products directly into schools, which was very mission-aligned for me because I believed very strongly that, um, you know, for many of these products and services to get to the the kids that really needed it, um, we needed to be they need to be in school districts. And so I was there for about six months and um, got to see some really cool 
products, meet really amazing entrepreneurs, but they slowly decided to change their strategy, um, and they were focused instead on helping entrepreneurs um, basically just sell direct to consumer because mm-hmm. selling directly into schools is hard. You have Very to have a hard. sales team. The cycles are... Yeah, the cycles are long. It's a complicated process, and... Um, Around the same time, I had been working on an idea with a couple of my friends. Um, basically, we had all moved from the East Coast to the West Coast. I'd sold all my furniture in this townhouse in Baltimore that I was living in um, on Craigslist and thought, wow, this is incredibly inefficient, <laughs> and then bought pretty much the same stuff in San Francisco and um, and basically you know, decided that maybe this was a, a problem worth pursuing. Um, so we all... We, we all had kind of different experiences. My three other co-founders had moved from Minnesota, New Hampshire, and Texas. And um, I don't think any of us were, like, super excited about staying on in our roles. Um, and so one day we just quit. We raised money on an Indiegogo campaign, and we started emailing people on Craigslist, telling them that we would pick up their stuff. And we found a warehouse space in San Francisco where we stored all this furniture. Wow. And so that became Move Loot. That became Move Loot. And and Move Loot, you you guys ended up raising twenty two million. Yes. Uh, and then inevitably closed your doors. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. I mean, not not like raise twenty two million <laughs> and, and then close, and then close doors. your doors. But, we took the money home. No, we didn't. But yeah, but you 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 kind of rode the roller coaster. We we definitely did. Um, in about three and a half years, we built this really large business, and then very quickly the whole thing fell apart. Yeah. Um. Yeah, so I'm happy to share more about that. But well, and, well I, what I actually would, I'm not so much like the mechanics of what happened, but I think sometimes, I, so we're in Louisville, Kentucky right now, and um, you were doing this out of Silicon Valley. And mm-hmm. I think the culture of failure that I see in the Valley uh, is one where it's accepted. It's just part of the, the narrative. But in, in communities where capital is scarce and opportunity is constrained, mm-hmm. Failure is not an option. And so it, it creates a, this culture of fear of failure. Uh, and so, as you know, talking to an entrepreneur here, or talking to an investor in a, in a community like Louisville, Kentucky, or St. Louis, or Memphis, where you're from, um, what could they learn from your experience uh, that would be helpful for them in starting out or recognizing, okay, it could fail. Mm-hmm. That's a real thing. Uh, how did you get comfortable with that notion? Even even though you were in the midst of Silicon Valley where that's accepted, how did you, did you even think about that? Or is it just, we just got going and... and uh, yeah, it's a good question. I, I think there's a lot of things um, that I feel like I've learned from that or that I could impart as wisdom potentially. But um, I think the biggest is that one, you can fail and be okay. Yeah. Um, I think I didn't believe that when we were building this company. And certainly when we shut down the business, I certainly went through a number of months of like severe depression um, and thinking that, you know, I'd certainly ruined it this time. Um, But I think the reality is that a lot of this is what do you do with the experience of, of something like that? If it doesn't work out, how do you think about the lessons that you've learned and use them um, to be able to do it better the next time, um, or to let it lead you to what you want to do next. Yeah. Um, I also think that something that's important in my mind is for entrepreneurs to think about how to speak up and 
um, own their own destiny. And I think oftentimes with in dynamics with investors, especially investors that might have invested in more companies than you have, um, or they've seen more companies than you have, and they have more experience than you do, I think it's tempting to um, just kind of listen to what the person sitting on the other side of the table has to say, mm. um, instead of listening to your gut. Um, at the end of the day, you're running your business and people are going to give you a lot of advice. Um, but if something doesn't feel right, there's probably a reason why. Yeah. And you should probably follow that instinct. And it sounds like those two things, if I'm following your bio, have really kind of led you to what you're working on right now. Mm -hmm. uh, so talk to me about um, what project you're working on right now and kind of where you are uh, in the midst of that. In the midst of it. So it, kind of based on my experience with MoveLoot, I um, have been developing the idea for a new asset class. I don't want to call it a step fund, but the idea behind it is that I believe we need a middle-of-the-road solution that exists in between venture capital and traditional debt financing um, to help businesses grow profitably and sustainably. And then in our case, that is biased towards women, people of color, and people that are running businesses outside of the Bay Area. Um, access, I think, has been a theme of my, of my life, um, and creating access to capital for people that don't have it is really, really important to me. Um, but I think even more importantly than that, I think creating opportunity by way of like um, ownership is, is also really important. And so the way our model will work is that we would make an equity investment in a company and the company would use revenue to buy back the equity so that the founders maintain more ownership in the business over the long run. And the goal isn't to grow a huge big business, um, it is instead to, to build something that's profitable. Mm. So in that, that scenario, the investors can still win, like they yeah. get their return, but the entrepreneurs can win as well. Yep. Uh, and so what a, what a neat, what a neat strategy. Um, you once said, and I think it's somewhat related to that, um, this notion of access and, and opportunity, um, a, a quote that I found is, as I've grown up, I've found increasingly that the communities that I'm a part of are largely dominated by people who don't look like me. Yeah. Uh, as a result, I found myself in many uncomfortable situations, situations where I'm the token person of color or woman. In those roles, I become the default advocate for inclusivity or the person calling out racism and sexism when I see it. Perhaps at times to the discomfort of those around me, I've been given a seat at the table because my experience and education have afforded me the ability to code switch. Uh, and I'll jump ahead, but, but at times being the token leaves me feeling defeated, exhausted, and frustrated. I want to ask kind of two questions with that. Um, how, how have you been able to overcome those feelings? Um, because I can only assume that the, the, those can be deflating experiences. Um, I'm a white man, so I don't, <laughs> I don't share those experiences, but uh, I, can, I, can, I can hear in those words just an exhaustion yeah. So how do you overcome that? And then second is like, how, how can, how can we create more room at the table? Yeah. I think those are two really good questions. I think when I wrote that, I was feeling particularly defeated. <laughs> um, I'm glad you're beyond that. <laughs> so we can talk about <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, of course. <laughs> um, but, uh, but I think, you know, I, I think there's a number of ways that you kind of move past that. For me, it's been being able to find, um, communities of women and communities of people of color who are also going through similar things, um, whether it's other entrepreneurs or other investors, um, people that you can kind of vent to and, and talk to um, about this stuff. And then I think 
it's also about finding people who can be real advocates. Mm -hmm. I um, am fortunate enough to work in a place, I mean, Claire Lee, who's the head of the early stage banking practice at SVB, she's the one that created this role for me at SVB. And she is an incredible advocate for women and people of color and, you know, founders who are um, atypical, I guess you could say. Um, and I think without her, like having someone, you know, not having someone like that um, be an advocate for you, I think can make things really, really difficult. So I'm, I've been fortunate that I've had that in my career where I've had people who've kind of taken me under their wing or um, really been an advocate for me. That's um, great. And then on the second question of how do we, how do we, how do we move towards more authentic engagement and, um, and, and use our privilege for the, for the sake of others? How would you, you know, you're talking to me, yeah. <laughs> a white man, <laughs> how can, how can we work towards, um, more, uh, breaking down the power dynamics that we kind of were talking about a little bit around venture capital. Those exist in a lot of ways. Um, how do we, how do we break that down? So I think, I think there's two things at play here. I think there's one, the, like the interpersonal piece. So as an entrepreneur, how do you fight bias in the system on a daily basis as an individual, which I think is a much harder question because, um, at the end of the day, in many of these cases, you're subject to kind of the, the power dynamics at play. Yeah. Um, and it's hard as one person to kind of fight the system. I do think there is a lot of really interesting stuff happening um, now just in terms of information sharing, particularly between entrepreneurs where um, people are more willing to talk about their experiences. And as a result, like know, you know, if and when there are bad actors or know who can be really who, I mean, I think on the more positive side, who really is an advocate and who can mm. be really helpful um, but the second piece to that, I think, is is more systemic, um, which, you know, I would I would talk about kind of the need for systems change, both in tech, but I think more broadly just in business. Um, many of our, our, I guess, institutions or workplaces are um, still uh, still have policies that I think are somewhat outdated when it comes to um, paternity and maternity leave, when it comes to Childcare, when it comes to healthcare, um, just thinking about the ways in which you can create a work environment that is one that is accepting of a lot of different types of people, um, a place where lots of different types of people want to come to work is, I think, something that people don't do from the very beginning. It's something I find a lot of entrepreneurs don't think about when they're building businesses from the ground up. Um, so I think what would be really cool um, from my perspective is as a venture capitalist, thinking about how do you equip entrepreneurs with the skills that they need to build businesses um, that are culturally responsive and that are um, thoughtful about, you know, the needs of different types of employees um, as the company grows and that they're doing that from the very beginning. Mm, that's great. That's really helpful. So I want to go back to something you said just a couple minutes ago about uh, the step fund and yeah. this, this new asset class. So you call it a middle of the road. So it are you... It sounds like you still feel like there's a room, there's room for venture, mm -hmm. um, but there is a need for something else. Yep. Um, that what we've done over the last several decades is just kind of this works and it becomes the the gold standard, if you will, where we don't deviate from it. Um, so is that something that you believe? Do you believe there still is kind of there's you know there's there's going to be need to be multiple buckets yep. of that entrepreneurs can go, and it's not to say that venture is not not a necessary thing or in some situations, but we should have alternatives. Um, yes, totally. I think, I think venture is necessary. 
Um, I think it's particularly necessary for certain types of businesses that have a lot of R&D that aren't going to have revenue for, you know, a few years that really need the runway um, because they're working on a big, hairy problem. Um, but I think we need alternatives because the reality is most businesses aren't going to become Google. And I don't think we should push every business to try to become Google. Mm. Um, I want to live in a world where there are lots of different types of businesses that are doing lots of different types of things. Um, And I don't think we have a financing structure right now that supports that. Yeah. What what would you say? So you've run a couple of businesses. What's the purpose of business in community? I mean, I think the purpose of business is to create economic value in a community um, where you're operating. Um, I think that's what's incredibly powerful about businesses and, and to create jobs, good jobs with, you know, with benefits and, um, to provide people with kind of a livelihood that is sustainable for them and their families and can create wealth for them and their families. Um, that's, that was kind of my, my goal in getting into business. And, and so, um, I think, uh, the financing structures that we have right now don't necessarily allow for that. Yeah. So the step fund, you launched this, um, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, the emergence of this new asset class. Cause I've heard folks across the country starting to talk about this and yeah. we're seeing new, um, new inklings in communities across the country, which is awesome and exciting. Um, where, where does this take us as a nation, as a financial, um, economy? Um, what, what hope do you have, um, as this comes on board, um, what, what numbers uh, do you think we are hoping to change as it relates to access to capital for specific communities? What are you, what are you watching and targeting? I mean, I would love to live in a world where we had a, a set of entrepreneurs that were um, much more diverse that were getting funded. I think more importantly than that, I, I want to live in a world where those entrepreneurs are creating businesses that um, are incredibly successful, where they own the vast majority of the business, mm. and that they themselves can then become investors and invest in other people that look like them. And that's the power of Silicon Valley, I think, is that you have people who have been able to take capital and create these big businesses, create a huge amount of economic value, and then their employees um, and the founders can then go on to become investors. Now, those investors are largely white men, um, and those employees are largely white men. And so if we can diversify who actually has that opportunity, I think it could be really transformational for our world. If you'd like to learn more about Shruti, check her out on Twitter or LinkedIn and keep your eyes out for the step fund that's sure to roll out later this year. Again, if you'd like what you've heard, drop us a review, subscribe, and stay tuned for next week's episode. Check out our work at accessventures.org. I'm Bryce Butler. Thanks for listening.